Craig Hoffman. Hello from an egregiously gloomy day here in Washington, D.C. So happy to be back and podcasting, doing The Hoffman Show here on HoffmanShow.com. We are officially on iTunes. Subscribe if you do that kind of thing. There's a nice pretty button on the right side of the blog page at HoffmanShow.com for you to do that. Uh, So I'm pumped. That's sweet. That's cool. Makes me very official. Uh, Also very official. I am Eagle, NBA play-by-play man, and so much more for CBS Turner, the Nets. He's going to join me in about 12 minutes or so. Then, for my orange people, Syracuse. Busy day yesterday. Busy week. New athletic director needed. Best player leaving for the NBA draft. Signature building. Getting a makeover. All of that with Brent Axe coming up uh, in about a half an hour from right now. And then, uh, it was graduation weekend around the country. Russell Wilson spoke at Wisconsin's. He gave a great speech, except for the parts that weren't true. We'll do that coming up to call it a wrap at the end of the show. But we start with Game 1 last night of the Western Conference Finals. And a play, a sequence really, it's not a play, it's a sequence that really defined this game. Westbrook again with the lead. Adams to the left. Oh! It was blocked. Here comes Thompson. Green blocks Adams. They come down the other way. Looks like Clay Thompson has a dunk. And then you just hear the oh of the crowd. Because he got blocked by Serge Ibaka. And it was a beautiful, insane play by Serge Ibaka. By Serge Ibaka. For all of the struggles offensively, uh, it's not really struggles offensively. He does what he's asked to do, or not what he's asked to do. He does what he does well. He's shooting three at over 50% this postseason. But he's never really expanded his offensive game. He's still great defensively. Like Serge Ibaka may not have developed into a star player, but he's a really, really, really good player. And a play like that really has incredible value, specifically in that spot, right? Draymond makes a defensive play. All of a sudden, they have a run out and a dunk. And you're not just looking at a 10-point game if Clay Thompson's able to dunk that home. You're looking at a 10-point game and the arena going bonkers. Instead, the Thunder come back down the other way. Deion Waiters makes a sick play in the lane and winds up for an and-one for Steven Adams. He missed the free throw, but he made the layup, and it's a six-point game instead of 10. So you're looking at a four-point swing and a complete and total 180-degree swing in momentum. And every time it looked like the Warriors were going to just run away on the Thunder, they made a play. And that's why I think that sequence really is a beautiful microcosm for the game. Just when you think the Warriors are about to just hit that bomb like they they seem to always do, the Thunder would make something happen. They stay within distance. And I even wrote down in my notes, by the mid-third quarter, and Russ had started to heat up, this was basically right as Russell Westbrook started to heat up and go bonkers in that third quarter, I, I wrote, Kerr asked me thinking, oh goodness, if Russ and Kevin get going, we're in trouble. And sure enough, Russell got going in hyperdrive, and Durant hit a couple to close the game, and the Thunder win. I didn't even think about this game, I and I almost tweeted that. I almost tweeted, you know, the Warriors are going to win this game, but Kerr's got to be going, oh my god, we're, we're in bad shape if we play like this for the rest of the series, because Durant and Westbrook aren't. Lo and behold, they come back and win the game. That's really, really impressive. Specifically by Russell Westbrook. He was exceptional. And it's not like he played differently. I think a lot of times we search for answers, specifically in basketball, of what changed? What what did you do differently? What strategic adjustment did you make? You want to know the strategic adjustment that Russell Westbrook made in the second half last night? He made shots. He had some really tough shots that he missed in the first half. And when he takes them in the first half, 
you go, hey, guy, quit shooting. You're not a good shooter. Except for Russell Westbrook's not a bad shooter either. He's not great. He's not Durant. He's certainly not Curry. But he gets to his spots, and he's effective. Now, is he, he's most effective when driving, obviously. Makes stuff happen, gets to the free throw line. And for as poor as he can be and is from the three-point line, uh, he's a near 90% free throw shooter. And that pull-up game that he has is lethal because you're so on your heels trying to prevent him from getting to the rim that he's able to get good, clean looks. And his bounce is so crazy and so quick that even if you get a contest, he's going to elevate over it and get a clean look. When you say a clean look, it is literally your vision to the basket not having any interference. And Russell Westbrook is able to get off shots like that because of his athleticism. So... He starts hitting these shots in Curry's face and then hits a couple more and then gets to the rim and then starts getting to the free throw line. The next thing you know, the the Warriors' lead is gone and Westbrook's got a 19-point quarter. But it's the same mentality and the same shots, mostly. I mean, he had an early three in the clock that he hit. He just hit it. That's basketball. It happens. Um, I thought Draymond Green, after the game, really summed up why the Warriors lost. I think our defensive game plan was pretty good, really good. Um, and offensively we suck yeah pretty much defensive game plan good I loved the complete ignoring of Andre Robertson uh just given that what they did to Tony Allen last year in the semifinals where you don't guard him and let Draymond roam I thought that worked it was effective uh they clearly bothered Durant early in that game man Kevin Durant I can't believe I'm saying this he's Kevin Durant like he's Arguably the second or third best player on earth, depending on what you do with LeBron and Curry. Like those are the three best players on earth: LeBron, Curry, Durant. He was spooked, spooked in that first half. It's a sequence where he dribbles the ball out of bounds. It's called off of Golden State, so the Thunder get the ball back. They inbound the ball to Durant. Durant goes to drive, and, and this is where they showed, like, while the ball was out of bounds, waiting to be re-inbounded, they showed a close-up of Durant's face, and he looked spooked. And sure enough, he goes to drive after getting the inbounds pass, and Andre Iguodala pokes the ball away from behind, turnover, outlet pass, Iguodala dunked, and you're just going, like, what? Who... Did the Monstars take Kevin Durant's powers? I thought LeBron James was going to be in Space Jam 2. Not Kevin Durant in the Western Conference Finals. It was crazy. But I kind of at the time, and I tweeted this out. You can follow me on Twitter, at Craig Hoffman, C-R-A-I-G-H-O-F-F-M-A-N. There's also a button on the bottom of the site if you just want to click directly to it. But... I tweeted, like, he's Kevin Durant. He's going to be fine. But right now, he's not fine. And he wasn't. He was miffed by the Warriors' defense for a lot of the game. But late, he got in some one-on-one situations and was able to knock down some shots. Again, he's good enough, just like Westbrook, that if he gets to his spots and gets his shots, he's going to you know, average out to making most of them. And that's what happened with Kevin Durant. Um, offensively, the Warriors just stunk in the second half. They were dreadful. Did not get the shots they wanted. Took too many quick ones. If it's Clay or Curry taking quick shots, I don't mind as much. When you got Iguodala and Barnes and Green taking quick shots, that's not what you want. And sometimes the you know, when you hit a shot you're not supposed to, it can be the worst thing because then it gives you this false confidence so like when Draymond Green's dancing and then hitting a shot over Ennis Cantor like cool you got two points but you got to be smart enough to know I can't do that again and Draymond didn't take it like Draymond didn't necessarily stick out in terms of taking some bad shots at the end um I mean the last two shots that Curry took were garbage the last one he had to take but the second to last one where you're down I think it's five and you still are within striking distance um, without a miracle, like if you play your timeouts correctly, uh, you're still in it. And he takes like a blind turnaround three. That's just a garbage shot. And there's a lot of stuff that happens before that. 
um, that makes the lead evaporate, but they did not get their shots. And for as much as we think of Golden State as a jump shooting team, they're at their best when they're attacking the rim and with they attack with the pass. And you think of early in this game when they built their lead, you know, the signature play of the first half, um, if you take out Curry's buzzer beaters, probably the Sean Livingston dunk. Just move it around, and you've got enough poor defensive players on the floor for Oklahoma City that someone's going to make a mistake, or undisciplined, I should say, um, players for Oklahoma City that someone's going to make a mistake if you make them move and make them make decisions. And the Warriors lost a lot of that. They kind of oversimplified, um, and that was why their offense went to trash in the second half. So what now for Steph Curry and the Warriors? Obviously, it's not a good feeling losing you know, game one, especially at home. And it'll be a different situation for us to, to try to bounce back. At this point in the series, having a, a deficit, so I think it's fun you know, to be able to have this opportunity to come back and, and show what we're made of. I think it's cool that Curry's looking forward to it. Uh, they did went through this last year. You remember they're down 2-1 to Memphis. They lost a game at home, and I think they'll be fine. I still think they're the better team. I still think they can win the series, but if you ask me before the playoffs which team scares you the most for Golden State, it'd be Oklahoma City. Having two of the best three players on the floor is no joke. And so it's up to the Warriors to maximize the fact that, well, yes, the, they have the best player in Curry. The Thunder have the next two best players in Durant and Westbrook. But then, like, the next seven are probably for Golden State. Golden State's got to have those guys elevate their games. And they got to have more from those guys and, and figure out how to get more uh that, that Curry has some help that, I mean, Draymond and Clay both had really good, Green and Thompson both had really good games. Uh, but they got to get more from even farther down the roster because their depth is what makes them so devastating. And current company will make adjustments because that's the beauty of depth. When you have more options than the other team, you typically win a playoff series. And the Warriors have more options because they have more personnel. They just got to figure out which buttons are got they need to hit and have to figure it out quickly because these series aren't that long um they can feel like they take forever but you know you can be in trouble pretty quick and the warriors obviously need to win game two a quick note on the thunder this made the rounds on twitter last night uh but if you had didn't see it you went to bed immediately after the game or whatever hats off to the thunder man the spurs lost once at home all year the warriors lost twice Against those two teams on the road, the Thunder have won three in a row. That is crazy impressive. These Those two dudes are bad mamajamas. And if they get help like they did last night, they're the favorite. I mean, I don't think it's going to happen <laughs> consistently. But Deion Waiters was awesome last night. Let's go, Orange. Dion was great. That's a guy I really actually am on a first name basis with. That's not that's not variation in vocabulary for the sake of no monotony. That is my dude. And my dude balled out last night. Andre Roberson. Look, you're gonna stink on offense. Made some great defensive plays. Do what you can. And it was really impressive by the Thunder last night. Game two is Wednesday, so we're looking forward to that. And, of course, to game one tonight. Let's talk about both of them now with Ian Eagle. Craig Hoffman. Simply put, he's one of the best play-by-play men in the business. He does football for CBS and Westwood One, uh, does basketball for CBS and Westwood One and the Nets, and then come playoff time is with Turner and TNT and called the Raptors Heat Series for them. Uh, got to watch as a fan last night as the Warriors and Thunder did battle. He is Ian Eagle. And Ian, last night, uh, I would say how that game played out surprised me. Um, not that the Thunder won because the Thunder are really good. As great as the Warriors are, the Thunder are really good. But how that game played out with the Thunder coming back, did that surprise you at all? Yeah, surprised me in that Golden State actually looked out of sorts for a long stretch of that second half, which we just haven't seen all that much. And the times that we have seen it, 
more often than not, they figure it out. They find a way. Even in off nights, late in the game, uh, they pull off some unexpected or unlikely play that leads them to victory, and everybody around the NBA shakes their head and says, okay, yeah, they did it again. This is who they are. Uh, The biggest difference with Oklahoma City from what I saw early in the playoffs to what I see now is confidence and more of a set rotation where they're comfortable going big, and it's affecting the Warriors. No doubt about it, the length, the size, the bulk that Oklahoma City can bring. We knew the firepower. To me, that was never a question mark. Would they be able to score with the Warriors? The questions were pretty simple. Could they stop Golden State in key moments? Could they stop them over long stretches of the game? And we got the answer, at least in game one. That doesn't mean that this series is over by any stretch. We know that Golden State will be heard from again. But a very good sign for Oklahoma City that they took what they learned in the second round against San Antonio, and they've seen a carryover into the third round. Billy Donovan's done an excellent job with his team, and while many around the NBA going into that second-round series, Craig, questioned the coaching matchup between Popovich and Donovan, he answered those questions, and here we are now in the Western Conference Finals with a chance to go to the NBA Finals, and Donovan continues to push the right button. Yeah, absolutely. The question, of course, is how much of it is sustainable. Their defensive level, um, some of the struggles by some of the Warriors, and then also some of the the really solid play by some of the the role players uh, of Oklahoma City. A guy like Dion Waiters, who uh, obviously, uh, considering where he went to school, we I'm sure uh, at least I have a fondness for him. Uh, I'm sure you do too, uh, and that you want to see him succeed, but. He's a guy who's been wildly inconsistent. Um, of kind of those factors that may vary, which do you think is sustainable in terms of what we saw last night? Oklahoma City's role players playing well, their defensive level slash Oklahoma, or slash Golden State's offense staying in that kind of a funk. Yeah, I don't think you can go into each game of this series expecting that from the role players of Oklahoma City. The only thing you can expect is the combination of Duran and Westbrook to put up numbers. How they put up those numbers could vary. And Westbrook really had problems in that first half, third quarter. He looked like the best player in the NBA. You're starting to get to the point where you can rely on Steven Adams and what he brings to the floor night in and night out. Nobody ever questioned his physical ability, his hustle, his savvy, his smarts. The questions with Adams were pretty direct. Can he finish around the rim? Can he finish in traffic? Can he make free throws when needed? And he has been a consistent player for this team uh, throughout the playoffs. And there are stretches where they've needed him more than uh, they've needed some of the other bigger names on their team. Waiters is so streaky. Uh, He shows you signs of attacking the rim, being aggressive, uh, being more consistent from three-point territory. But unfortunately, it doesn't live game to game, and that's why he's one of those wild cards at the end of the year of what he's going to make in the open market. I think there are GMs that feel as if his talent can be a big part of this league for 10 years, and there are GMs that just don't see enough of his consistency to say, I'm going to pay him big money. The Golden State side of things, Craig, look, they've proven time and time again if there is a quote-unquote funk by their standards, they'll get themselves out. Uh, We'll see the rhythm of that Golden State team again. Curry's not 100%. We tend to forget that because of all of the incredible shots and his unlimited range and his agility, but he's not. Uh, He's dealing with a knee injury, and because of that, uh, there are moments where we don't know if you're going to get the unanimous MVP, Steph Curry. Down the stretch of the game, I think the concern was that they didn't even find him in a couple of situations where he had a clear mismatch, where Cantor had switched out on him and it was Harrison Barnes, or it was Draymond Green, or it was Andre Iguodala taking over. Uh, that, that can't happen. In these big moments, uh, you got to live and die with Steph, and I'm sure, I'm sure Steve Kerr in those moments uh, would like to get a do-over and, and make sure that Curry gets his hands on the ball. Yeah, absolutely, and normally that's something Golden State is great at. Did you work at all with Steve Kerr uh, while he was at Turner? 
I did. Yeah, I did. Do you, I do you have like a favorite Steve Kerr story? Because it seems like anyone I ask who has a Steve Kerr story has a great one. Yeah, I, I think with him, uh, because I didn't do 10 games or 20 games or 30 games, I just did a couple and I was around him at seminars and college basketball. What you see is what you get. Uh, this guy, to me, when he was a broadcaster, was as good a basketball communicator that I had ever been around. So when he gets the head coaching job, the first thought for most people is, well, how's that going to translate? Yeah, I know he can talk hoops on the air, but can he coach it? Can he teach it? Can he connect with players at a level that is expected of a head coach? And the answer to all three were a resounding yes, 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 on all fronts. And the part that doesn't surprise me at all with, with Steve is his ability to get the most out of people, but doing it in a way that you don't feel as if he is trying to get the most out of you. He just has this innate communication ability and relatability that is not taught. That's him. That's him as a person. He was going to be successful at whatever he decided to do in his post-basketball career. Uh, this is what happened to call his name. Uh, I ended up doing a, a serious XM radio show with him as well, a basketball show that he signed on for, and he had never done talk radio, and he was good right away. Within the first 15 minutes, he was good at it. Uh, that's who he is. That's what he's capable of, and it's not a surprise to me at all that he's a successful as he's been as a head coach. As far as a broadcast partner, the fact that he got my references without batting an eyelash, there was no double take. He just picked up and tagged. And as funny as a guy he is, he's equally as good an audience. Uh, he likes to laugh. He likes to go to sublime places on the air. And you can't do that with a lot of people. He was capable of of doing the X's and O's and capable of doing the fill time in a blowout. So basically you can do everything. Great. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just trying to do something. He can do everything. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, and, oh, by the way, he was a championship caliber player before that. So nice life uh, there for Steve Curry. But it, it seems like that's the, the book on him is that he's just successful is the one word that everyone seems to use to subscribe to describe him no matter what it is. Um, you had a series uh, in Raptors heat that frankly for a lot of it was terrible basketball. It's highly competitive. Um, it's intriguing, but the quality of play was certainly not uh, the highest of that the NBA has to offer as you're calling that series. How much of that is on your mind, and how do you handle that on the air, that a lot of what is in front of you, while compelling and intriguing and competitive, is sloppy? Yeah, I think the mindset from a play-by-play man is you have to tell the full story. So there is this fine line that exists, at least in my mind, of doing your job, calling the play-by-play, and conveying the necessary information so that the viewer knows what's going on, but also being true and being honest without going overboard and going into complete kill mode. Uh, the goal is to tell the full story. And the full story requires you to indicate when the game is sloppy or where things are disjointed. Uh, you have to be honest. The audience can see it. Uh, there's no getting around it. Transparency is a must. But I do think there is a limit. At some point, the audience gets it and call the game. If you're in a tight game, and it hasn't been well played, it's still a tight game. You still have to deliver in the moment as a play-by-play man and be on top of it and not couch it with, oh, yeah, that was buzzer beater, but as we know, this wasn't great basketball. Uh, that's not how it works. Uh, for those who watch the series, for basketball purists, they know. Uh, they don't need me to hold their hands through every shaky moment. Uh, but... I, I do have to do my job, and Brent Barry and I in that series, our focus was still to do the best job that we could do in describing the action and conveying what the storylines were. Uh, I think there was a general feeling that whoever survived in that series would be a sacrificial lamb for the Cavaliers <laughs> in the Eastern Conference Finals, so uh, you don't hide from it, but you don't promote it 
every quarter that's played, uh, you still have to call what's in front of you. And the Toronto Raptors, for that organization, Craig, it was a huge step. That's an important part of the process, getting to a conference finals, uh, crossing that off the list, checking that box that they've now accomplished that. That's big, and it probably saved a lot of jobs within that organization as well. If they lost to Miami in a Game 7, I still believe there, there would have been changes. That was just my sense of talking to people around the team when I was up there for the conference semifinals. Things were not etched in stone that this team would come back whole. It doesn't mean that the team you see now is the team you'll see next season, but for the most part, it validates the fact that they're at least on the right path. Yeah. Absolutely. I want to get back to the sacrificial lamb and what you think of the Eastern Conference Finals in a moment, but one more quick technical play-by-play question. You did have a buzzer beater, a pretty epic one uh, in that series. Is it game three, game four, uh, or maybe it was even earlier because it was it was at uh, in Toronto. Um, the Lowry. Yeah, it was game one. It was, oh yeah, it was game one. Series. It's so long ago, I can't remember. Uh, <laughs> but the 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 mid court. He from Kyle Lowry that goes down in your mind kind of take me through it from your eyes as you call and, and have a great call and nail that moment. Yeah, the the approach uh, for me at least from a play by play standpoint is don't give up, don't give up on the play, don't give up on the game, don't give up quarter by quarter, and maybe that's based on the fact that I've done the Nets games for so many years, twenty two years, uh, working that job. And that means a lot of NBA games. So there is trial and error. And there are moments where you think a game is over or a play is done and you move on and you start your wrap-up call or uh, you begin to turn the page. Uh, To me, it was one of those moments where uh, you call the play throughout. Don't don't just assume that "Ah, it's a half-court shot, it's going to be way off, let me get the words together in my head that I want to say at the end of the game to put a period on this thing, uh, that's just something you learn after doing this for, for many, many years. So for me, it's, it's based on following your instincts as normal and uh, just don't give up. Don't give up on the call in front of you. Uh, that was another lesson to be learned. Uh, that highlight is going to be played over and over whether you like it or not so if given the choice it's better to be in the moment and live in the moment from a play-by-play standpoint than it is to uh, jump ahead and try to anticipate what's going to happen and your whole voice inflection and your whole mentality changes Uh, that's that's how i've tried to to approach all things no matter what the assignment whether it's radio, whether it's TV, whether it's basketball, football, tennis, whatever the assignment might be, uh, just know that uh, live is live. You don't get to redo it. <laughs> and as that ball is in the air, how? I mean, the the reverse angle of Dwayne Wade's realizing, oh my God, this is going in, is great. Um, at what point did you realize it? It oh, this has not only has a chance, but this thing's this thing's good. I got to tell you, when it left his fingers. It felt good. It was not one of those where I was completely shocked by it. As my voice is building, I really thought it was going in. And that, you don't always feel that way. Most half-court eaves, you're like, all right, this isn't even going to draw iron. This might hit the backboard. This thing is way off or it's way short. The ball had eyes. And the irony is that he couldn't make a shot that game. Yeah. That's the strange part. Now... The problem for Toronto, and it could have been a complete classic, you need to win the game. The moment is the moment. But you'd like to win the game because that would have played a big role looking back on the history of the Raptors for them getting to the conference finals. Now they got there anyway, and uh, that highlight will live on for Lowry individually, for the team. But... It's interesting when those moments happen and you don't win the game. Reggie Miller hit a half-court shot in a game that I called when the Nets were playing the Pacers in the first round back when it was three out of five. It was a game five at the Meadowlands. Uh, the year the Nets went to the finals for the first time, Jason Kidd's first year with the organization, Miller hits a half-court shot to tie the game, send it into overtime. He has a big dunk in the overtime session to send it to a second overtime. 
And then Kidd just took over. He abused Ron Mercer in the second OT, and the Nets won the game, won the series, went to the NBA Finals. Miller hit the shot. Nets won the game. People remember the Nets winning the game more than Miller hitting the shot. I didn't think we'd get Ron Mercer being abuse stories. That's a treat. <laughs> well, it happened. That happened. I, I definitely witnessed that. And then he ended up with the Nets after that. Yeah, as the NBA circle goes. Uh, real quick, last thing. The Eastern Conference Finals. Are the Raptors a sacrificial lamb? They played the Cavaliers really well during the regular season. I think that series is going to be more interesting than a lot of people are. But the Cavs are rolling right now. Yeah, and I hope it is interesting because I think, in a way, Cleveland needs it to be interesting. I don't, I don't love when teams breeze through and don't get tested and don't feel some angst and pressure. The one thing that has struck me about the Cavaliers, Craig, in this postseason compared to previous years with LeBron on the team, they've done it drama-free. Uh, it's hard to say that a LeBron James team is going under the radar. They are right now. And that's pretty amazing considering all the theater that surrounded him, whether it was his first stint in Cleveland, in Miami, second stint with Cleveland. Last year, as we know, uh, they had a lot of ancillary storylines that affected them, the injuries to Love and Kyrie Irving. Uh, with all of that said, nobody's really talking about them. They've looked like NBA championship caliber. They have goals in mind, and LeBron individually, I think, would love another crack at the Golden State Warriors if it ever turned out that way. But there's still business to take care of. The Valanciunas injury really hurts Toronto in this series. Cleveland's such an excellent rebounding team. Tristan Thompson uh, is one of the best individually. Uh, I think Toronto has some juice coming off the conference semifinals. The fact that DeRozan and Lowry rediscovered uh, a little bit of of their mojo is a good sign. I don't know if this stage is a little too big for them and the opponent matching with that team is going to be too much for them to handle. Can they win games in this series? Yeah, I think they can. Can they win the series? Uh, barring injury, barring some unforeseen act, I don't see it. I tend to agree. Uh, he does all the stuff I talked about on the top, although his next job actually is calling tennis, the tennis channel, the French Open, starting coming up this weekend. Uh, you can watch him there. Ian Eagle joining me on the Hoffman Show. Ian, I always appreciate catching up. Uh, you've been a great friend and mentor for a number of years now, and uh, I'm glad that now that I'm not working for an ESPN station that I can talk to you about sports. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a fair point. We can actually talk again. We, we went through a stretch where we were not allowed to speak. Contractually obligated to silence. Uh, thank you, my friend. I appreciate it. You got it, bud. We'll do it again. Talk to you soon. Craig Hoffman. Brent Axe writes and talks about all things Syracuse for ESPN Radio in Syracuse and for Syracuse.com. Been doing a great job covering sports in that town for a long, long time. And Axe, uh, let, let's go literally a number and then 10 to 15 seconds on each, and then we'll dive in in detail. On a scale of 1 to 10, how surprised were you by the news about the Carrier Dome, Malachi Richardson going to the NBA draft and hiring an agent, and then Mark Coyle stepping down as athletic director. All right, first of all, can I only get one long in that intro? Not a long, long time. Can I just get a long time? Uh, a sig- uh, here, yeah, um, he, he's been doing a good job for the entirety of the time he's been there, which is somewhere between uh, here and, and a long time. I don't know. Yeah, sure, we can do just one. Bud Poliquin gets the long, long That's time. true. Okay, I, now, I only get long time. All with, right, let's get that with, straight. With the context of Bud, you've been there about <laughs> three seconds. All right, so let's go through these. Malachi Richardson, uh, uh, how surprised was I? Zero. I mean, we've now seen three straight players go in the first round. His buzz really picked up, not necessarily because of the Virginia game and the NCAA tournament, but it caused people to go back and take a second look, and they like what they're seeing out of him. So I was not surprised by that at all. Mark Boyle, very surprised. I mean, even in this day and age where people leave and go for bigger jobs and bigger opportunities, ADs don't leave after 10 months. So that was a huge surprise. That's a 10 out of 10. And uh, I forget, what was the third one? The, the Dick Carriodome project. Uh, Dick Carriodome was a zero, too, because we know it's been coming, and we saw – you know, certain stories have come out in the last few months, and the deadline was this weekend for the Board of Trustees. 
So uh, I would put a zero on that one. That seemed to be where they were going, improve the dome and put a permanent roof on the place. So I think we just got a, got a confirmation of what we've been expecting. So let's go in reverse chronological order with those. Start with the dome. Uh, that was yesterday's, I guess, later news after the Richardson news. Is this dome project a good idea or is this putting makeup on a pig? It's a terrific idea because I think – you know, it needs a permanent roof. You can't keep doing the air-supported structure thing anymore. It's it's seriously outdated. And, you know, the, the uh, skyline in Syracuse, New York, is going to look a lot different, but that could be a good thing. They're modeling it after the new Minnesota Vikings Stadium and the Chinese Stadium they use for the Olympics, and it's kind of a really cool concept of how they're going to do this roof, and I think it's going to be beautiful. I think that, that the skyline of Syracuse, New York, is, is going to be... You ever see the Empire State Building and how they light it different colors for things. I mean, that's what we're talking about in Syracuse. So it's going to be great. I love that they're staying in the dome. I don't think it's feasible to build a new stadium at this point. I, I, I like the concept that we're kind of doing here, what they did in Boston with Fenway Park. You know, let's keep that thing around as long as we can. And, you know, they are putting lipstick on a pig, but uh, it's not going to look like the same building when it's done. And they're putting improvements in there that fit the modern-day sports fan. So I am all for that. I love what they're doing here, and they're not going too over the moon. I mean, $255 million is a lot, but, you know, the, the prior concept they had for a new stadium, we were talking about five $600 million, and everybody was kind of wondering where that was coming from. So this seems to be uh, more reasonable. And then just real quick, this question pops up, flares up every now and then. Uh, with the the actual name of the dome, the Carrier Dome, is this going to possibly reopen some naming rights discussions? Because it is one of the worst contracts in sports. Bobby Bonilla thinks the Carrier Dome naming contract is a bad contract for Syracuse University. Uh, you took my line, Hoffman. That, that, I did. That was it. Yeah. There, there's been there's been there's been three really bad deals in sports history. One is Bobby Bonilla. One is the one of the old owners of the ABA actually negotiated with the NBA to yep. get one set of their television revenue, and that earned him $800 million before he passed away recently. And the Carrier Dome deal is the other one. It's a near-impossible deal to get out of, but they're trying. And I think this renovation could be it. I think there could be you know, a payoff with Carrier coming. I mean, they're trying to get out of this because you know, think of the money you can make easily, you know, 2 $3 million a year to slap, you know, insert corporate name here on that building. So... They're doing everything they can to do it, but the contract's pretty ironclad. And I'm, if I'm carrier, I have no motivation to get out of it whatsoever because of the free advertising I get. So, you know, we'll see, but trust me, they are doing everything they can to get out of that deal. In terms of Malachi Richardson, you were not surprised at all. I certainly wasn't surprised at all, especially with how news has been trickling out over the past month or so. It seems like he may even have a first-round guarantee from a team. Um, but how prepared is the program to move on without him? I think they're prepared in the sense that you saw how aggressive they went after transfers at the guard position. They landed John Gillen from uh, Colorado State, who I had the uh, play-by-play voice out there describe to me that there's probably no player at his position that goes 94 feet faster than him. So they're getting a, an athletic kid who can shoot from three, who can shoot free throws. Free throws matter. I'm really happy about that. He's an 88% free throw shooter. Uh, there's parts of his game he's got to work on, but uh, by all accounts, a great player. I think people are going to be very impressed with Tyus Battle. He's got to do a little bit more now, but I think he's ready for that. The coaches have prepared him for this. And, you know, Frank Howard has to step up certainly in the sophomore year, but I, I think that's what we've seen in Syracuse. Players just make progressions and get better year by year. Uh, it hurts, don't get me wrong. I mean, to have a player of Malachi's structure out there to, to you know, complement Battle, compliment Tyler Lydon, who stayed at Syracuse, who was probably the more important of the two to stay at Syracuse. But, you know, it, it hurts. I mean, he's, he, he's a player who could have really insured himself as probably a top-ten pick had he come back. But uh, Syracuse is always prepared for these things, Craig. This is the third straight player to leave after one year, and it's just life in college basketball today, and you know, I think they'll be fine. I think that's a team that can still compete for, you know, a Final Four berth next year. Look what they did this year. I mean, now in some ways they're upgrading. So, uh, you know, I think they'll be fine. Yeah, and this is a, obviously, I mean, everyone kind of has to go through it, and it's really hard to replace these good players, but this team saw what happened when you didn't, when Tyler Ennis left and there was no one really there to play the point guard spot. 
Um, this year, obviously, Tyus Battle coming in is going to help a ton to fill the scoring void. We'll see how that winds up turning out. I think they were oh, – no one's a lock for the Final Four, but a lock to be one of the favorites if Richardson returns. We'll see what they wind up being uh, by the start of next season. All right, let's get to the biggest of these stories and the one that has the most lingering effects currently, and that is Mark Coyle leaving as the athletic director. He says it's for family reasons. Was the family reason the fact that his family now gets a bigger paycheck? That's the number one reason. I mean, there are ties there. And Mark Coyle, you know, welled up at the press conference when he talked about Goldie the Gopher coming to his kid's birthday party <laughs> when he was out there. You know, he is a Midwestern guy, uh, spent some time, you know, grew up in Iowa, spent some time there in Minnesota before. So I get that. And I think it was a horrible sense of timing that he took the Syracuse job and then two months later, the AD at uh, Minnesota was forced out for all sorts of ridiculous reasons. And I think Coyle kept an eye on that job and said, boy, that's probably the one I really wanted. But the way this went down was was shady. It was cloak and dagger. It was very unprofessional. I don't begrudge a guy for taking a new job, but to do it in the manner in which he did. I mean, Craig, I've never seen this before. University of Minnesota puts out a press release at about noon that day. It says, hey, we've got a candidate for the AD job. And it was Mark Coyle. And five hours later, he's standing at a podium taking the job. It was unbelievable. It took everybody by surprise. When that happened, Craig, I mean, there's people that I text up there that know things, and, you know, they'll usually play defense on me or kind of indicate, okay, you're heading down the right path, look for an official announcement. Uh, and it's later, everybody I contacted up there responded with some sort of exclamation point, what are you talking about? I have no idea what you're talking about. I mean, this was as much of a health operation as I've seen in sports. And that's almost impossible to pull off these days. Yeah, and especially for a guy who talks so much about transparency. Right. He bets exactly at this guy walked in the door talking about truth and transparency, and everybody's going to know where I stand. (laughs) And this is how he leads. And by the way, buddy, you're an athletic director. Okay, this isn't, you know, we're not talking about, you know, battling ISIS here. You're an athletic director at a college. You can you can make a phone call. You don't put your football coach, the one important hire you made here at Syracuse, in a position where an ESPN reporter is informing him that you left. So all that aside, yeah, the money's the reason he went, and it's a, a Big Ten job, and it's you know it's Minnesota isn't you know Michigan or Ohio State, but that, that's a pretty good gig given their facilities and given what they pay and you know, that he's got roots there. Yeah, no doubt. What effect does this have on Dino Babers, the one hire that he did make? That's a great question because I think Dino came a lot because of Mark Coyle. I mean, Syracuse and the opportunity and the job and the ACC and the step up from Bully Green and all that stuff certainly matters. But, you know, Mark Coyle convinced him to come here. And, you know, Babers had other opportunities. And it's funny, Craig, as we speak, Dino's on this tour with Jim Beheim. They're touring the state and doing this whole, you know, kind of meet and greet thing. And I wonder what he's thinking now that the guy that hired him is out the door. So I, I think if Babers is successful here, he'll be somebody that, you know, could have a wandering eye somewhere else anyway. But if I'm an athletic director and I come in and I've got a football coach I can hire, but you've got to give him at least two years to see what he can do. That, that's kind of an interesting position, so... I think Syracuse has to go out and find somebody that, you know, from afar looked at that gig and looked at that move and said, yeah, that was good, and not somebody that will come in and, and, and rock the boat and put a new football coach in place. Because I like the favorite hire, and I want to see it play out. I want to see what he does here. This is a guy that's got a proven track record in a building that, you know, needs a football uh, philosophy that he's bringing here. So uh, hopefully it doesn't affect it in any way, shape, or form, because I want to see this play out. Yeah, me too. Uh, when I was in the Redskins locker room last year on the day that he was hired, Robert Griffin III walks in, sees me, and goes, you got a good one. Babers was with Robert down at Baylor before he took the Bowling Green job. So I, I definitely want to see this play out because I think he could be uh, the kind of coach that this team needs in the aftermath of a very defensive-minded guy in Schaefer um, where the offense has essentially died. Uh, real quick, just – who do you think is the best candidate for t- to, to be the next AD at Syracuse? I think Nick Carparelli is a terrific candidate. He is the former uh, administrator in the Big East. He went to Syracuse. He still bleeds orange. He was actually part of Paul Pasqualoni's coaching staff back in the day. He's currently a big league executive at Under Armour. 
He's somebody that gets the modern world of being an athletic director, that you're a fundraiser, that you're a part television executive. Uh, he believes in the school. You know, I wrote a column on Syracuse.com that said Syracuse's next AD should be somebody that has roots here, that has skin in the game, that believes in Syracuse University and won't present another Mark Coyle situation where you'll get a wandering eye elsewhere. Go hire the guy that has a wandering eye here and wants to be here. So I think he's right at the top of my list. I don't know if the board of trustees and the people up at Syracuse agree with me. They'll probably go waste thousands of dollars on yet another search firm. <laughs> They'll find somebody. I think a couple of the names you got to throw in there are, uh, and this is just my opinion, I don't know how much consideration they'll get internally, but I think Chris Gadney is a terrific candidate. He's somebody that has been a part of the Orange Pack at Syracuse, knows how to raise money, uh, loves the school. He's well-respected amongst big donors. He's yeah. well-respected within the university. He's well-respected throughout college athletics. I think uh, John Hart at Bucknell is somebody they'll look at again. He was a big part of the search last year, and he took his name out of consideration, but I don't think he will do that this time. I think he'll – he's a former compliance director at Syracuse, by the way, and I think this time he'll look at it. And Gene DiFilippo's name has come up, who was, uh, of course, the longtime athletic director at Boston College. So those are names I think are in consideration, Craig, but we know how this is going to go. Mark Coyle's name came out of the clear blue sky last time. So it's somebody we're not thinking of now. So, uh, you know, go on there and, and, and do your best uh, on the Google and, and see who you think <laughs> makes sense. And, and we'll, we'll see who pops up here. But I know this. It should not take three months. This no. time. And three months was actually a pretty quick search when they replaced Daryl Gross last year. I mean, you just went through this 10 months ago. You should not have to, you know, take as much time. This time around, get somebody in place, get somebody in place who – now, Mark Coyle was just learning about Syracuse, New York, and he left. Bring somebody in who could hit the ground running. No, I agree with that. And if your guy from Under Armour comes, uh, Beheim will make him sign some kind of special stipulation that the school will stay Nike with with Jim's uh, affinity <laughs> for Nike over the years. Uh, Brent Axe, again, you can listen to him on ESPN Radio in Syracuse. Read him and go check out that column and, and the rest of Brent's work at Syracuse.com. Follow him on Twitter, at Brent Axe Media. X-Men. Always good to catch up. No question, my friend. Anytime. Best of luck to you, and uh, thanks for having me. Call it a wrap. I'll call it a wrap today with the story of Russell Wilson's weekend, more specifically the stories that Russell Wilson told this weekend. Get to those in a minute. As Wilson was the commencement speaker at his alma mater in Wisconsin, one of his alma maters in Wisconsin. That's important to the story. But I actually wound up watching a couple of commencement speeches this weekend. Uh, One from Sheryl Sandberg, who's the COO of Facebook, gave the Cal commencement speech. Really powerful. Really, really well done speech. Recommend. Um, I actually read the transcript of it through the Boston Globe. Uh, I'll put a link to that on the site, uh, hoffmanshow.com, right beneath the podcast. If you're listening on iTunes, uh, just go to the site, go to the blog, hoffmanshow.com, click the blog, and I'll post up a link to the uh, the transcript. I actually also, funny story, uh, went back and listened to and watched Aaron Sorkin's commencement speech from Syracuse University in 2012, which I was at, um, and you're going, why would you go do that? Nostalgia? No? I kind of missed it the first time. Oh, good job, you hungover buffoon. Uh, no? I was completely coherent and fine, despite commencement being really early in the morning on a Sunday morning. I was A-OK, except for the part where on Saturday I popped my eardrum with a Q-tip because I am an idiot. And when you're in the Carrier Dome, with its current roof, Brent Axe, with its current roof of Teflon, where the sound bounces all over the place, and you've got an ear that's got a hole in it, so the sound's bouncing all over the place, it's really hard to understand what anybody is saying. It was muffled beyond ability to hear. So I went back and watched it, and it's like, man, that was a really good speech. Too bad I didn't really comprehend it the first time. I got bits and pieces. I remember he kept talking about how it was May 13th, 
2012 and this is the first day of the rest of your life's kind of deal. Um, and it was really powerful. And I remember being good. I just kind of got it better this time because I could hear. But anyway, Russell Wilson gave a speech at Wisconsin and it was really good. Like as a speech, if you just isolate it in a bubble without regard for the truth of the stories that he told, it's a great speech with a great message. And even with the added context that I'm about to give you, what he's saying is still really powerful, meaningful, and true. What I don't understand is Russell Wilson's need to tell fishing stories. Now, I like Russell Wilson. There's a lot of people that don't. There's a lot of people that think he's fake and phony. And certainly for them, this is a hell of a lot of ammo. He doesn't care. But I just, as someone who does like Russell Wilson and thinks he does do a lot of stuff right, who approaches his celebrity in the right way, um, constantly in the community, wants to make a difference, wants to be a positive influence. Why lie? So the message of his speech is kind of, you know, when life tells you no, keep going. And he starts out by telling, you know, a few jokes and then he kind of gets into the speech and he's being goofy, kind of dorky Russell Wilson. But he gets into the speech and and just his whole demeanor changes, which is kind of cool to see. And you're going, okay, there's the guy that can command the huddle instead of this goofy dork who a bunch of other football players would laugh at and be like, okay, guy. And, And you just see this command come over him. And he starts off by telling the story of his freshman year at NC State. And according to Wilson, it's training camp. And he's like last on the depth chart at quarterback as a freshman. And... His coach is talking about moving him to safety, and his coach even says, like, I'm moving you to safety. And then he thinks about it and prays about it, and all of a sudden comes back a couple days later and goes into his coach's office and says, I'm going to be your starting quarterback. I'm going to be first-team freshman All-American. I'm going to be first-team All-ACC. I'm going to play in the National Football League for a long time. I'm going to multiple Super Bowls. I'm going to be a Hall of Fame quarterback. What do you think? He looked at me like I was crazy, scratching his head. But three days later, he named me his starting quarterback. And that's the first time my antenna went up on this speech. A college coach isn't telling a freshman to switch positions and then three days later going, Hey, that speech you gave me really, really spoke to me, son. You're my starting quarterback. And while Wilson's self-belief is certainly powerful and valid, did he really march into his coach's office and lay out what his career actually turned out being? It's a hell of a story. Could be true, but it's a hell of a story. So my antenna are up at that point. And he goes on to talk about his leaving of Wisconsin. And that, he completely remembers incorrectly. Remembers in a way that makes him seem somewhat of a martyr. When the reality is, his head coach, Tom O'Brien had another NFL prospect that he was going to definitely lose, and he could have lost Wilson if Wilson went and played baseball. So he could have wound up with two quarterbacks, could have wound up with one quarterback guaranteed if he said to Wilson, hey, man, like, thanks, but we're going to go with Glennon. Mike Glennon was the other quarterback, who's now the backup for Jameis Winston in Tampa, started a couple years in the NFL. Or we can potentially have zero. So there's a risk for two or zero, or a guarantee of one. His coach took the guarantee. And for as much as it stinks for Wilson, who had a great career at NC State and was very successful playing for Tom O'Brien, it was a decision that O'Brien had to make at the time and is completely understandable. Wilson wasn't a case of, oh, no one believed in me. So when his phone rang off the hook, which he talks about, of other schools that wanted him to come play, that's not surprising. Once he decided he was going to play football, he was going to have options. But at the time, Mike Glennon was eligible to transfer too as a graduate transfer. So why would Tom O'Brien go, hey, this guy is ready to commit to football and wants to play, 
when this other guy can't make up his mind between football and baseball. It makes sense. It's added context. The truth is powerful. Why not tell it? The power in Wilson's story would still be there. My coach had to make a tough decision. He made a decision that didn't give me the option that I wanted. That happens in life. Hell, you could say that's why I'm sitting here in my room right now with a home studio set up instead of an actual radio studio. A business I was working for had to make a decision because of certain things going on in their business and I was a casualty of it. That happens in life. That happens in business. Especially to a group of people in an audience that aren't going to be professional football players with guaranteed contracts. Uh, Well, I guess football players don't really have guaranteed contracts, but, you know, I'm sure Wilson's seen this with his teammates. You know, he's not getting cut, but he's seen teammates get cut because of money. In this case, it wasn't money that was the deciding factor, but this kind of stuff happens all the time. There's power in the truth of what Wilson's story was. So why tell a lie? He goes on to talk more about baseball. In the baseball, his junior season, uh, before he left NC State. My freshman and sophomore year at NC State, I had about 450 to 500 at-bats. It knew. And Wilson's freshman and sophomore year, he combined, combined, for 143 at-bats. 450 to 500? Uh... No, you're not going to get that many if you never miss a game in your college career, basically. That's just too many at-bats. But continue. And this one weekend we played UC Irvine. Both, top, both teams are top five in the country. And, I mean, I don't play at all. The whole weekend, nothing. I'm not going to lie. I was pretty frustrated. But my dad always used to tell me, be ready. So I decided I'm not going to complain. Instead, every time our defense comes in and we're up to bat, I put my helmet on, I put my gloves on, no more Garcia Parra style. I get my bat in hand, and I stand there waiting. First inning, second inning, third inning, all the way to the 10th. There's two guys on base with one out. I'm just sitting there with my helmet on looking like a dork, and a guy pops up, two outs. Then I hear, Wilson, you're up. So I go to the plate, and this guy's pitching it nasty. I'm talking, he's throwing 125 miles per hour if that's possible. I mean, fuego. I mean, he's legit. The first pitch is a slider. And what do I do with it? Swing and miss. Next pitch, a slider in the dirt. Swing again. Shouldn't have swung. Strike two. I'm one strike away from losing the game. It's the first time I've played in a while. The guy throws me a fastball high and inside. I'm thinking to myself, I still don't know to this day why he threw me a fastball. And what do I do with it? Wham! Boom! Game over. Hit over the fence. That happened. He did hit the home run. But it was his second at-bat of the game. And his junior year, he wound up getting more at-bats than his freshman and sophomore years. So even if he didn't play that weekend, he still got almost 25 more, 25 more. It was about 73, 74 a pop. His freshman and sophomore years wound up batting 98 times his junior year. This chip that Russell Wilson has is valid in a lot of ways. There are a lot of people that said he was too small and he couldn't do it. And I understand that motivates him. And Russell Wilson's work ethic is a legendary story I like to tell that I heard when I was covering the Texas Rangers uh, who acquired him his baseball rights are with the Rangers. John Daniels, the Rangers general manager, called Wilson. It was like 540 in the morning Pacific time. You know, it's 7.40 in the morning Central. And J.D. calls Russell Wilson to let him know that he's been drafted, kind of forgetting that Wilson lives in Seattle. And Wilson picks up the phone. And J.D.'s shocked. He's intended on leaving him a message. Or kind of, you know, okay, he'll call me back when he gets up. Wilson wasn't just awake. He was in the film room already. That's the kind of work ethic Russell Wilson has. There's so much about the truth of Russell Wilson that is inspiring and that it could be meaningful for a group of people that are about to go off into the world. Why fabricate a lie? Why stretch the truth? 
The truth is powerful, and I don't understand why Russell Wilson didn't use that power in his commencement speech. I just don't understand, and I think that it gives an opportunity for those who think that he's fraudulent and those that think that he's fake to have real ammo because he was fraudulent and fake. And it takes away from the meaning and the power of a great speech with a great message. If we do what we need to when life tells us no, if we know what we're capable of, if we stay prepared no matter what, if we keep our sense of perspective, even when times are tough, then I know that together we're going to do amazing things with our potential and achieve our greatest dreams. So on Wisconsin, I would say good luck, but I don't believe in good luck. Go make it happen. Thanks, Ian Eagle, for joining me today. Thanks to Brent Axe for joining me today. You can follow Brent on Twitter at Brent Axe Media. You can't follow Ian on Twitter. You can follow me at Craig Hoffman, C-R-A-I-G-H-O-F-F-M-A-N. Thanks for checking out the show. Subscribe on iTunes. Keep reading the blog at HoffmanShow.com. That's it. That's all. Goodbye.